Well, thank you for that wonderful welcome. I, I suppose since I'm in Quebec, I'm supposed to begin with a few words of French. I can say, you know, bonsoir, but maybe we bring in another language, English, French, and that's just me, Jane, and chimpanzee. So I want to try and go rather quickly through various things tonight. And first of all, I want to start off by asking, how did I get to be where I am? And Annie, you said some wonderful things, but how did that all come about? And I put a great deal of credit to the, um, for my mother, because she was an extraordinary mother. And when I was born, I seemed to have an innate love of animals. I don't know where it came from. I just had it. And she always supported this. So I was 18 months, apparently. I don't remember this, of course. But I was 18 months when she came to my room and found I'd taken a whole handful of wriggling earthworms to bed with me. <laughs> and she said, Jane, it looked as though you were trying to work out how they walked without legs. And instead of getting mad at me, you know, throw these dirty things out of the window, she said, Jane, they need the earth, they'll die here. And together we took them back into the garden. Well, uh, I was four and a half years old. And a very exciting thing happened for me. We lived in London, where there aren't that many animals. And now we went to stay on a farm in the country. And in those days, farms were farms, and animals roamed around in the fields. One of my jobs was to help collect the hen's eggs. And the hens were meant to lay them in these little wooden hen houses. I don't actually know how big they are, because when you think back to when you were a child, some things actually were smaller than you remembered them. But anyway, I went round each morning and opened up the lids of the little nest boxes. And if there were eggs there, I put them in my basket. And apparently, and I don't remember this either, but I started asking everybody, but where does the egg come out of the hen? Because I couldn't see a hole big enough. <laughs> and obviously, nobody told me to my satisfaction. So I still remember seeing a hen move up uh, this little sloping plank into the hen house and thinking, ah, she's going to lay an egg. So I crawled after her. Big mistake. Squawks of fear, she flew out. And I distinctly remember thinking, remember I'm only four and a half. She's going to never come back to lay an egg here. This is a frightening place. So I went into one of the other hen houses and hid in some straw at the back and waited. <laughs> and waited. And waited. Which was fine for me, but my poor family didn't know where I was. <laughs> Imagine how my mother was feeling. It was getting dark. She was out searching with everybody else. She sees this excited little creature rushing towards the house all covered in straw. And I know so many mothers who would have grabbed that child. <clears throat> how dare you go off with, without telling us? Don't you dare do it again, which would have killed all the excitement. But she saw my shining eyes and sat down to hear the wonderful story of how a hen lays an egg. And I tell that story advisedly, because if you think of that story in hindsight, isn't that the making of a little scientist? Uh, curiosity, asking questions, not getting the right answer. 
deciding to find out for yourself, making a mistake, not giving up, and learning patience. It was all there. And how easily my mother might have crushed that early curiosity and that little scientist in the making might have gone in a different direction. She went on supporting my love of animals by finding books for me to read about animals, thinking, well, Jane will learn to read more quickly. Of course, I did. We had very little money. World War II was raging by this time. Most of the books that she brought me came from the library. We couldn't afford new books. There were some wonderful second-hand bookshops in those days. And by the time I was 10 years old, I was spending enormous amounts of um, time in one particular second-hand bookshop where books were all piled higgledy-piggledy and the little gnome-like owner really didn't know where anything was and was totally happy for me to be there for half a day. And one day I found this little book, which I still have, and I had just enough money saved up from my pocket money to buy it. And that little book, which I still have, was called Tarzan of the Apes. I took it home. We lived with my grandfather. We'd moved there when the war started. And I took it up my favorite tree, a beech tree, and I read it from cover to cover. Well, little girls of 10 are often pretty romantic. And of course, I fell passionately in love with Tarzan. And what did he do? He married the wrong Jane. <laughs> At any rate, I was 10 years old when I started my dream that I would grow up, go to Africa, live with animals, and write books about them. And everybody laughed at me. As I say, World War II was raging. We didn't have any money. Africa. You know, there were no planes going back and forth. We thought of it as the dark continent. We knew very little about it. And I was a girl. And back then, girls didn't have those opportunities. Those adventures were for the boys. Jane, get real, dream about something you can achieve, forget this rubbish about going to Africa. But not my mother, nor her family either. She used to say, perhaps not in these words exactly, that if you really want something, you're going to have to work really hard and take advantage of opportunity and never give up. And so when I left school at age 18, there was no money for university. She said, do a secretarial course, then perhaps you can get a job in Africa. And that's what happened. So I was working away in London with documentary films, got a letter from a school friend inviting me to Kenya where her parents had moved and had a farm, didn't have enough money, couldn't save up in London, went home, worked as a waitress in one of those old-fashioned hotels where you have to serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner to the same group of people for a week, and they didn't have much money. They came down from up north for a week by the sea. Uh, so it took an awful long time saving up my wages and my tips, but finally I had enough. And 26, sorry, 23 years old, I set forth on this amazing adventure. And today it's normal for a 23-year-old young woman to go off to another country alone. But it wasn't back then. And my mother was actually accused of being irresponsible, but luckily she paid no attention. So I got out there, stayed with my friend, heard about the late Louis Leakey, who had spent his life searching for the fossilized remains of early man. And somebody said, if you're interested in animals, you should meet Louis Leakey. And so I went to see him at the Natural History Museum. 
I remember him asking me hundreds and hundreds of questions. And because I'd gone on reading books about Africa and spent hours in the Natural History Museum, I could answer many of his questions. And I hadn't gone for a job interview, but I left with a job. And um, he offered me the chance of being his secretary, assistant secretary. And so, you know, again, my mother had done the right thing. And it was during those next months that he decided I was the person he'd been looking for to go and study chimpanzees. His arguing, and this was way ahead of his time, was that if I found behaviors that were the same or similar in chimpanzees, our closest living relatives, and ourselves, then perhaps those same uh, behaviors might have been present in a common ancestor, if we believe in a common ancestor, six, seven million years ago. And if that was so, then those same behaviors might have come with us through our long evolutionary journey, as also with the chimpanzees. And that might help him, he thought, to have a better understanding of how perhaps early Stone Age man might have behaved. Because, of course, behavior doesn't fossilize. So that was, his, that was why he wanted me and subsequently Diane Fossey and Baruti Galdikas to go and study chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. But back then, it really wasn't easy to get the money. I had no degree. I was straight out from England. It took a year, but finally a wealthy American businessman said, all right, Lewis, here's money, just six months, we'll see how she does. And there was a second problem, and that was in those days, Tanzania, where I have conducted this study since 1960, was still part of the British colonial empire, the crumbling empire, uh, and it was Tanganyika, the old East German territory. And the British authorities were absolutely not prepared to take responsibility for this young girl on her own in the forest. And so they said no. But Leakey never gave up. And in the end they said, oh, all right, but she must have a companion. So who came with me that same amazing mother? And she played a wonderful role. She boosted my morale. In those early days, the chimpanzees would run away as soon as they saw me. They're very conservative. They'd never seen a white ape before. And they would vanish into the vegetation. And so I was getting more and more worried as the weeks turned into months, knowing that if the money ran out before I saw something exciting, that would be the end. And I would have let Louis Leakey down, because he really stuck his neck out to get me out there. And so my mother was able to boost my morale when I'd get back despondent in the evening. She'd point out what I was learning from, I found this peak overlooking two valleys. And she said, well, you know, you're learning how the chimpanzees wander around by themselves or in small groups, how they join up when there's a delicious food, how sometimes there's a big excited gathering with many, many chimpanzees. You're learning about what they eat. You're learning how they bend over the branches to make nests at night. You're learning a lot. And so it was pretty sad, really, that she left. Her four months was up just before the breakthrough observation when the chimpanzee who had begun to lose his fear of me before all the others and whom I had named David Greybeard because of the beautiful white beard on his chin. On this day, I was walking through a forest trail 
and I saw this black shape huddled over a termite mound, and I saw a black hand reach out and break off a grass stem and push it down into the termite mound and pull it out with termites biting on with their jaws and eat them off. And I saw him pick a leafy twig and strip off the leaves to make a tool to fish for termites. So here was David Greybeard using and making tools. And back then, it was thought that only humans used and made tools. We were defined as man the toolmaker. And so when I sent a telegram to Lewis Leakey, he sent one back saying, well, we shall have to redefine tool, redefine man, or accept chimpanzees as humans. <laughs> that was the observation that turned things around, because at this point, the National Geographic Society agreed to come in and support the research, and they supported it for a good many years after that. So I could go back, relax, settle down. I knew that I could get the chimpanzees to trust me if I had long enough, and indeed, gradually, one after the other, they began to lose their fear, and then I could get close, and then I could begin to learn some of the secrets of their life in the forest. And it was a very magical time. Everything I saw was new. Learning about their complex social structure, learning about their nonverbal communication, kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting one another, begging for food, swaggering to threaten another, shaking the fist, throwing rocks, um, and waving branches like clubs. These were the kind of postures and gestures that we use in our nonverbal communication. And the chimps were using them in the same kind of context. This was exactly what Lewis Leakey had been hoping for. So now he can imagine Stone Age man behaving in this sort of way when they communicate with each other. We don't know, but it seems very likely. And I also, as the years went by, began to learn about the aspect which has always fascinated me most, and that's the relations between family members. So the mother has her first baby when she's 13, one baby every five years, unless the child dies. But when the next child is born, the five-year-old doesn't leave the mother and go off into the society. No, no, still emotionally dependent males as well as females, for at least the next three or four years and sometimes longer. And so you see the affectionate bonds getting closer between the mother and her oldest child, but also developing between the oldest child and the young sibling. And even when the oldest child is 10 or 11 and another little baby is born, that oldest child still spends an awful lot of time traveling around with mum and the little brothers and sisters. And these supportive, affectionate bonds continue throughout life. And chimpanzees, uh, in captivity anyway, can live to be 70 years. So this to me was fascinating. Also finding that just as in our society, there are good mothers and bad mothers. And the good mother is protective but not overprotective. Uh, the most important characteristic she has is to support her child, running in to protect that child, even if he or she has become involved in a squabble with a playmate whose, whose mother is higher ranking than his or hers. And 
the mother may get beaten up for her pains, but she will go in and support that child. And that child is likely to grow up to be more successful in the community, more assertive, a better mother, a higher ranking male. So you see how lucky I was. My mother was supportive. That's the one thing I pull out of my childhood, how she supported me in all the crazy things I wanted to do and even came with me. So the, it was a bit of a shock to find that chimpanzees like us have a dark side to their nature and they're capable of violence, brutality, even a kind of primitive war but they also have characteristics of love and compassion and altruism. So that when a mother dies, if there's an older brother or sister, a little infant will be adopted. If that infant is younger than three years, he will still be dependent on his mother's milk and he will have no chance of surviving. But if he's beginning to feed more on solids, then he may indeed have a chance of getting over the loss of his mother. And it's a big trauma and a lot of depression is seen. One 12-year-old male adopted a little three, uh, three and a quarter-year-old infant, carried him on his back, let him share his nest at night, shared his food, protected him in times of social excitement. No question saved his life. And so it's pretty clear that there isn't a sharp line between us and the chimpanzees. And it's made even less sharp when we think of the biological similarities, which we didn't really know so much about back then. The fact that the DNA, the structure of the DNA of humans and chimpanzees differs by only just over 1%. The similarities in the composition of the blood and in the immune system, and the anatomy of the human and chimpanzee brain. In all these ways, we are so like them. And it's very clear that we are not the only beings on this planet with personalities, and not the only beings with uh, minds capable of simple problems, and certainly not the only beings with emotions. When I'd been in the field about one and a half years, I had a letter from Louis Leakey. I was sitting up on my peak, and it was brought up to me. It was very rare to get a letter back then. And he said, Jane, I won't always be around. You'll have to get your own money. You'll have to stand on your own two feet. So you have to get a degree. He said, we don't have time to mess about with a BA. And I've got you a place in Cambridge University in England to do a PhD in ethology. Ah, well, I didn't even know what ethology was. And, you know, no email, no Google back then. So I was a bit nervous, as you can imagine, when I got to Cambridge. And imagine my dismay when these erudite professors, of whom I, I was a bit scared, told me I had done everything wrong. I shouldn't have given the chimpanzees names. That was, that was anthropomorphic. They should have numbers. That was scientific. And it was even more anthropomorphic to suggest that they might have minds capable of thinking and personalities and emotions, happiness, sadness, fear, despair, all the things I had seen and recorded in the chimpanzees. And a lot of people have said to me, well, Jane, when the professor said that to you, why didn't you change your methods and do what they said you should do to be a good scientist? But you see, I had a teacher when I was a child, a fantastic teacher, 
who taught me those professors are wrong. And that teacher was my dog, Rusty. And you all know, I'm sure, any of you who have had a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a guinea pig, a horse, I don't care. If you shared your life in a meaningful way with an animal, you know they have personalities and minds and feelings. I wonder what the scientists back then would have said if somebody had come along and said, well, you know, my parrot understands exactly what I'm saying. He knows or she knows the meaning of the words. That wasn't possible because it was the bird brain and the bird brain wasn't structured like the mammalian brain and therefore birds weren't capable of these kind of uh, performances. But then it took two Caledonian crows in Oxford University to prove the professors wrong. So these two birds who were part of an experiment there, there was a perspex tube, and it was very simple. The crows were given a piece of wire with a hook, and they had to push this down into the tube and pull out the reward, easy. Until one day, the hook broke, and the birds were very frustrated. They pecked and you know, pushed this, this um, sharp piece of wire down, and of course they couldn't hook out the reward. And then to the two observers' amazement, one of the birds took the wire and with beak and foot made, a, bit, made, a, made a, a hook and used it to pull out the reward. Well, that was just a chance observation. We can't deduce anything from that. Uh, but the next day, the birds were given sharp sticks, sharp wires, and they did the same, or one of them did the same thing. And after a few days, uh, the scientists were saying, well, you know, it's only one bird doing it. It's an aberrant sort of thing. We can't deduce anything from that. So why was only one bird doing it? Because that bird was a female, and every time she pulled out the reward, the male took it. He, that she was his tool. He, he, why should he bother to go and make a tool himself? What do you think the scientists back then would have said if somebody had come along and said, hey, I want a grant to study the intelligence of the octopus? They would have been laughed out of science. But now it's a big buzz. And my favorite story of octopus intelligence uh, is an octopus named Athena who lives in an aquarium in San Diego. And there are lots of stories about her intelligence, but I picked this one. So the, the staff were coming in in the morning and everything was peaceful, but they kept noticing that a few fish had disappeared from some of the tanks and there was no sign of a break-in, so where were the fish going? And they set up a camera. And lo and behold, when everything was quiet, when the last person had left the lab and hung up their white coat, Athena would quietly crawl out of her tank, pushing up the lid, crawl over the floor, crawl into another tank, eat a few fish, crawl back and was innocently in her tank in the morning. <laughs> so I'm telling you these stories because I know there's a lot of students out there. Don't let, if, if you see something which you think is interesting and new, don't let somebody tell you, oh, that couldn't be possible. Pursue it, find out, and you may be right. There is so much we have to learn. We're just beginning to learn to ask the right questions about animal behavior. And there's an open field, 
and so much to discover if we will just have an open mind and not look in, in the term, in the, you know, out of a little box at the world. Use your imagination. Well, anyway, um, I got my PhD. I went back to Gombe, built up a research station, was having the most amazing life, learning more and more about these extraordinary chimpanzees, um, writing books. I had a bit more time then, and uh, analyzing the data, which I loved. So why am I not still there? That was the life I dreamed of as a child. What happened was that I realized that right across Africa, chimpanzee numbers were plummeting. There were other people by this time in the early 80s who were studying chimpanzees in different parts of Africa. And one by one, it became apparent that all of these study sites were showing the same sort of deforestation and chimpanzee numbers dropping, the beginning of the bushmeat trade, the commercial hunting of wild animals for food, chimpanzees caught in these wire snares, which are set by hunters for game animals, and sometimes the chimp gets caught with a hand or foot and can break the wire, but will very often lose the hand or foot or even die of gangrene. The, the real shock for me was in 19 early 1990s, flying over Gombe National Park and all the surrounding area. And I knew there was deforestation outside the park, but it wasn't until I looked down from this little plane that I realized that th there was an island of forest, tiny little 30-square-mile Gombe, surrounded by bare hills. And it was very obvious that there were more people living there than the land could possibly support people who were too poor to buy food from elsewhere, people who were overusing the farmland till it was infertile, with terrible soil erosion, because these are very steep valleys where Gombe is, and the little streams were getting silted up, and it was obvious the people were struggling to survive. And that's when I realized that we can't even try to save these famous chimpanzees if people are living like this around the periphery of the national park. And that led to our program called Takari, or Take Care. It began very small, 12 villages, the ones closest around the Gombe boundary, with a tiny grant from the European Union. And right from the beginning, it was a holistic program. This is, this is why it became so successful. And finding the right person, someone called George Strunden, who'd been out there 15 years, and he picked a team of Tanzanians. So it wasn't some arrogant white people going into the village and saying, oh, you've kind of messed things up and this is what we're going to do to help you. No, it was a team of Tanzanians, local Tanzanians. They didn't even have a PhD between them, but they had a lot of experience working with uh, foreign NGOs in forestry, agriculture, education, and so forth. And they went into the village and sat down with the elders and listened and asked them, what can we do to make your lives better? And so we started off with what the people wanted. They wanted to grow enough food to feed themselves. They wanted better education and health facilities. So working with the local Tanzanian authorities, we could begin to improve education and uh, perhaps bring in a few 
supplies to the dispensaries, even make a new dispensary, even build a new classroom. Restoring overused farmland without the use of chemicals so that more food could be grown. There wasn't really any more land, trees to be cut down. The reason that Poverty will destroy an environment is if you have to feed yourself and your family, even if you know that cutting down the trees is going to lead to soil erosion. What are you going to do? You have to feed your wife, your children, and you cut them down to grow a few more crops or to make charcoal so that you can buy a little food. So it was a, a program which has been so successful that around Gombe, we're now operating in 52 villages, restoring the environment around Gombe, protecting it in the south where there still is forest with chimpanzees. And by using up-to-date, cutting-edge GIS GPS satellite imagery, the villagers have now sat down with us, worked out their land use plans, which they are required to do, but usually can't afford to, so we got grants for that. And they set land aside for forest reserve from the different villagers in such a way that it formed a buffer around Gombe. And they're setting it aside too to make a sort of corridor for trees to grow back, linking Gombe with other um, chimpanzee remnant populations further south. And I'll come back to this later. So successful that this, this kind of program has been replicated in other African countries around other wilderness areas where there are chimpanzees. So the Takari program, as I've said, is really successful. But if we travel outside East Africa and go into Central Africa and West Africa, the problems that I've already mentioned, the deforestation and the bushmeat trade, the hunting of chimps, sometimes killing the mothers simply to get food, the fact that all the animals in the forests are being harmed. And as I traveled around these range states to try and talk to people about it and talk to ministers of environment and bring together NGOs on the ground, I realized that, that so many of the people were facing terrible problems just as they were around Gombe. There was crippling poverty. There was disease. There was ethnic violence. There was lack of education. And thinking about all these things as I learned more about them, it became pretty clear that some of this, not all, but some, could be traced back to the old colonial days when people went into Africa and took away the natural resources, including human slaves, and left the people poorer. And to some extent, some of the big multinationals are doing the same today. And so it seemed to me that here was something where the problems in Africa were directly caused in some cases by what we do in the developed world. And so traveling around Africa wasn't enough. And it seemed important to travel around the rest of the world, talking in Europe, talking in North America, and then moving into parts of Asia, and then more, most recently Latin America, because everything is interrelated learning far more than I wanted to learn 
about the problems we've inflicted on the planet. I wish I didn't know them all, but I, I couldn't help it. And the deforestation, the spreading of the desert, the shrinking freshwater supplies, the loss of biodiversity, species disappearing either locally or totally with total extinction. Learning more and ever more about this crippling poverty on the one hand, the unsustainable lifestyles of the rest of us on the other, and underneath it all, all the ever-growing numbers of human beings on this planet. Unsustainable. We're using up the natural resources as though they're infinite, but they're not. They're finite and they will run out. And of course, along comes climate change with these so-called greenhouse gases. We chop down the forest and CO2 is released into the atmosphere from the trees, but also from the forest soils. We have so polluted air, water and land with the pollution often running off into the rivers and so into the ocean that huge areas of ocean are becoming acidic and cannot any longer absorb CO2 the way they used to. So CO2 is mounting everywhere. And we are putting poison on our lands. We are throwing chemicals which have toxic properties onto our food. And we seem to be bent on destroying this beautiful planet. And it's really sad. Everybody knows that reckless burning of fossil fuels is adding to the greenhouse gases. <laughs> Go to Beijing. I was talking to a young man from China yesterday from Beijing. And, you know, today they have seven or eight what they call blue sky days a year. They can't exercise in the street. Many people will only go out at all if they're wearing a mask. That's from the pollution, mostly of cars, but also coal burning. We're destroying the planet. Fewer people understand the tremendous harm that's being done as the middle classes grow around the world in the developing countries, which of course is a good thing, less poverty. But it turns out very often that as people get more money, they feel the need to eat more meat. And to eat more meat amongst all these billions of people means raising billions and billions of animals to feed them, and people want cheap meat. So the conditions in these intensive farms are truly horrendous. But even if you don't care about animal suffering, and some people apparently don't, but even if you don't care, huge areas of forest are cut down every year to grow the grain or to graze the cattle for all these billions of different kinds of, of animals that we're eating. And uh, as the animals are fed slightly richer food than they normally would have to make them grow quicker, the process of digestion is producing more and more methane gas. That's what you get from the process of digestion in people. I don't know a polite way of saying it, so I just say that. <laughs> but you, you all know exactly what I mean. So. Methane, it turns out, we're also getting a lot of methane uh, as the permafrost melts. And some scientists are really concerned about what will happen because methane is a far more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. And even if you don't care about climate change, 
and you don't care about animal suffering. To keep these animals alive, they have to be fed routinely antibiotics, not when they're sick, all that as well, but just to keep them alive. And so these antibiotics are getting out into the environment and the bacteria are building up resistance and people have died from a scratch on the finger. This is why I carry around cow. Cow was given to me just as a kind of little sweet gesture when I was in Wisconsin, the dairy state, and I was going to give cow away to a deserving child. And I thought, no, cow can be my voice for the abused farm animals. And together, cow and I are doing pretty well. So you don't have to be a vegetarian, although I promise you'll feel really good if you are. But... Um, you know, people are advocating for a meatless Monday or two days a week, but you can eat less. So often we eat far more than we need. At any rate, here are all these problems which we've inflicted on the planet. And it, it brings me back to the sort of really important question. I've talked a lot about similarities in humans and chimpanzees, but clearly we're different. I mean, look, here we are sitting in this auditorium and you're listening to my words and I'm telling you things, you may not want to hear them, but I'm saying them and you understand them. And the biggest difference, I believe, between us and chimpanzees is this explosive development of our intellect. I mean, chimpanzees can do things we thought uh, th that was impossible, like, you know, they can learn 500 signs of American Sign Language. They can do extraordinary, uh, complicated problem solving on computers. They can paint pictures, and if they know sign language, tell you what they are. Uh, all of these things we used to think it was impossible for any, anyone but a human to do. And chimpanzees and other animals are finding, we're finding, you know, can do more and more of these supposedly human things. But we just created a rocket a few years ago, which went all the way up to Mars, the red planet, and out came a little robot. And that little robot is still crawling around years later, taking photographs for scientists on planet Earth to see what it looks like up there. That's extraordinary. When I was a child, it would have been science fiction, but we've done it. So the question is, how is it possible that the most intellectual creature that's ever walked on planet Earth, and I'm sure we'd all agree that that's true, is destroying its only home. The pictures taken of Mars make it very plain that that is not a hospitable environment for human beings. We're landed with Mother Earth, and we're destroying Mother Earth so fast. Do you think perhaps we've lost wisdom? The wisdom that some indigenous people showed making a decision based on how will this affect our people generations ahead. Are we too often making decisions based on how will this help me now or the next shareholders meeting or my next political campaign? Is there a disconnect between this incredibly clever brain and the human heart, love and compassion? And I truly feel that we can only achieve our true human potential, which is huge, if we have harmony between head and heart. It's not a bit surprising to me that as I was traveling around the world, I met and still meet many young people, like some of you students here probably, 
uh, but high school students, some people who just left uh, college and were in their first jobs, who seemed not to have much hope for the future. And many of them were angry. Some of them were violent. A lot of them were depressed. Most were just apathetic, didn't really seem to care much about anything. And when I asked them why they were feeling like this, they all said more or less the same. Well, you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. We have compromised your future. When I see small children, I feel so ashamed and angry and, and, and desperate when I think how we've harmed the planet since I was that age. But is it true there's nothing that can be done? There are many biologists who will tell you so. But I'm not alone in saying we have a window of time, a window to start changing the direction. But it depends on changing attitudes. And if we could just get a critical mass of us who start to think about the consequences of the little choices we make each day, what we buy, what we wear, what we eat, how was it made, did it harm the environment, uh, did, it, did it involve cruelty to animals or people, child slave labor, this kind of thing. And I think most people, even though they've become aware, do nothing because they feel useless and helpless and hopeless. They tell me so. So we just have to get it through to our thick heads that what we do as an individual, certainly in the big scheme of things, doesn't make a difference. But what we do collectively as billions of human beings making the right ethical choices, that's going to move us in the right direction and start to change the way that corporations think because they have an enormous role to play in changing the direction of the planet, just as now they have an enormous role in harming the future of the planet. So I began this program, Roots and Shoots, uh, in 1991 because if our young people lose hope, we may as well give up. And so Roots and Shoots began with 12 high school students in, on my veranda in Tanzania. And we talked about the problems that they saw in the world around them, in Dar es Salaam. They wanted me to fix them. I said, well, I'm not Tanzanian, but you know, these were 17, 18, 19-year-olds. I said, go and find the friends who feel like you do, and let's have a meeting. And Roots and Shoots was born from that meeting, with the chimpanzees central, standing like a bridge with humans on the one hand and the other animals on the other. And so right from the beginning, Roots and Shoots was about, was about doing projects which you feel passionate about to help people, to help animals, and to help the environment. And the group as a whole would tackle these three separate projects because everything is interconnected. And running through it is a theme of let's learn to live in peace and harmony, first of all with each other between religions and cultures. Gosh, we have a long way to go, don't we? Um, but, but also between us and Mother Nature. Because if we go on exploiting Mother Nature the way we are now, then all will be in vain. So Roots and Shoots, which began with these 12 students, is now in 136 countries. It has about 1,500 active groups. It has members from preschool, very strong in university. And I will be very sad if some of you students don't want to help us grow this program around the world. So come and let us know if you would like to learn more about it. 
It's my greatest reason for hope, I think, Roots and Toots, because everywhere I go on this, this endless circuit around the planet, there are young people with shining eyes wanting to tell Dr. Jane what they've been doing to make this a better world. And it's a, a group of young people around the world that share a philosophy, a group of young people that understands, yes, we need money to live, when we start living for money in and of itself, that's when it goes wrong. To make a lot of money, there's no, nothing wrong with that if you use it for the right purpose, to make the world a better place, like giving some to JGI, for example. <laughs> so as I say, this uh, Roots and Toots is my greatest reason for hope. And then there's the human brain. We've talked about that. What we are capable of doing is incredible. And then there's the resilience of nature. And I talked earlier about Tukari and how the villagers had put forest reserve around Gombe. Well, after 10 years, that land was so resilient that there were 30-foot-high trees. And 10 years after this began, the chimpanzees now have three times more forest than they had. And we even believe two females have moved in from outside along this leafy corridor. That's how they exchange genes and have a more viable genetic future. And then finally, my last reason for hope is this indomitable human spirit. You all know people who tackle seemingly impossible projects and won't give up. They're all around us. There are the iconic ones like Nelson Mandela who led his nation out of the evil of apartheid after 17 years of hard physical labor because of his amazing ability to forgive. But I, the other little person that I carry around, this is Mr. H, called Mr. H because he was given to me by a man called Gary Horn uh, 26 years ago for my birthday. And Gary Horn lost his eyesight when he was 21. He decided to become a magician. Everybody said, but Gary, you can't be a good magician if you can't see. He said, well, I can try. He's so good, the children don't know he's blind. And then he'll say to them at the end and, and tell them, you know, things might go wrong in your life because we never know. But if they do, don't give up. There's always some way forward. And he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He does skydiving. I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's ridiculous to jump out of an aeroplane. But to <laughs> jump out into a black void is the height of absurdity. But anyway, he does it. And he thought he was giving me a stuffed chimpanzee, and I made him hold the tail. Gary, chimpanzees don't have tails. He said, well, never mind. Take him where you go, and you know I'm with you in spirit. So we've been together to approximately 60 countries, and I would say he's been touched by at least 4 million people, because I say when you touch him, the inspiration rubs off. So those are my simplistic reasons for hope but I believe in them. And it's just a question of changing attitudes. And that's why I'm so passionate about the Roots and Shoots program. And we partner with other, you know, we, we can have the Girl Scouts um, Bristol Roots and Shoots group. Nobody changes who they are, but they come in under the umbrella so that we feel the power of doing things together. I've cleaned a stream here. I've reintroduced fish. 
but so have they over there, and so have they over there, and so have they over there, and eventually all these little places will join up and we'll find that we have a very different world just because we get to finally understand that each and every one of us makes a difference each and every day, and we have a choice. What kind of difference are we going to make? Thank you. Thank you very much, because that also is a reason for hope, your response to my talk. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Goodall, for an insightful and important lecture. You're truly an inspiration to us all.